0: Welcome to the Bedford Alliance Church Bible Reading Plan Podcast. I'm Luke Cusino, your discipleship pastor and host. This podcast follows along with our church-wide reading plan, which walks you through the entire New Testament and gives you an overview of the Old Testament. Join us as we dive into God's life-changing Word together. Hello, and welcome back to the podcast. We are continuing to work our way through the Bedford Alliance Church Bible reading plan. And last week in the podcast, we wrapped up the book of Hebrews. But if you remember, last week's reading also included Jude and the first couple chapters of 1 John. But we didn't get to those books in the podcast, we ran out of time. Hebrews kept us pretty busy. But this week we're going to package together the book of Jude and 1st through 3rd John since they're all smaller letters. Okay, So we're going to cover Jude and 1st through 3rd John. But let's start with the letter of Jude. Now Jude identifies himself as the brother of James. And this is very likely the same James who was a leader in the Jerusalem church and who wrote the book of James. Now if you remember, James was a half-brother of Jesus. We say half-brother because, of course, Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. So James was a half-brother of Jesus. And if Jude is James's brother, well, that means that Jude is also Jesus's half-brother as well. So why doesn't Jude tell us that? Why doesn't he say that? Well, probably because of humility. And he probably wanted to avoid the appearance of claiming special authority because of his biological relationship to Jesus. His authority, Jude's authority, his apostolic authority, comes from his spiritual relationship to Jesus, not his common ancestry, not his biological relationship with Jesus. So it's probably out of humility that he doesn't call himself the brother of Jesus. But we do know from Mark 6.3 that Jesus had four younger brothers and at least two sisters, and one of those brothers was named Judas, also known as Jude. So that's the Jude who's writing this letter. Now, one thing to be aware of with the book of Jude is its relationship with Second Peter. There are only 25 verses in Jude. It's a pretty short book. And about 15 of those 25 verses appear in whole or in part in 2 Peter. So there's a lot of commonality here with 2 Peter. And there's some different views on this. Some people say that Peter used Jude as a source when he was writing. Some people say the opposite, and they say that Jude used Peter as a source. Some say both of them used a common source. Or maybe both were inspired by the Holy Spirit, who inspired the same message. We don't know for sure, but most scholars today conclude that Peter probably referenced Jude as a source. But again, we're not certain about that. But if Peter used Jude as a source, it means Jude had to be written before the mid-60s AD because that's when Peter was executed. So this letter really dates anywhere from about the mid-40s AD to about the mid-60s. And we can't really be more specific than that, but it is a pretty early letter in the church's history. And Jude is writing to a specific church or a group of churches. He doesn't identify them. But he he expects his audience to be familiar, not just with the Old Testament, but also with other Jewish writings. And we'll talk more about that in a second. But given that Jude expects his audience to be familiar with these writings, his audience is likely Jewish Christians. And it, it seems like the church or churches that he's writing to were established by apostles. Because in Jude 17, it says, But you, dear friends, Remember what was predicted by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They told you, in the end times, there will be scoffers living according to their own ungodly desires. So it says the apostles told them, the apostles are the ones who established this church or these churches, and then false teachers infiltrated at some point. And Jude tells us that these false teachers base their authority on dreams, they're involved in sexual immorality. They're motivated by greed. They reject authority. And as a result, they cause division and all sorts of issues in the church. And in response, Jude says this, and this is really the main idea of Jude. He says, contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once for all. Contend for the faith. You know, this is one of these books that can be, easy to overlook in scripture or maybe just gloss over. It's not a very big book. It's not one that we often talk about. But Jude's message is just as relevant today. In a world that seeks to undermine the truth of God's word and put man first, we still have to contend for the faith. The message hasn't changed. It was delivered once for all, as Jude said. But just like in Jude's day, the world seeks to tear apart God's truth or distort it, twist it, and we need to stand strong. That's what Jude calls his readers to do, and we need to do the same. We need to evaluate things according to Scripture, not the other way around. See, the world wants to put man first and then twist Scripture to match what man wants. But we need to put Scripture first and submit to it and live in accordance with it. So understand, false teaching and attacks on Scripture, they're not new. They've been around since the beginning of the church, since the beginning of the gospel message. But a couple other things to note here about Jude. Probably the most challenging or controversial thing with Jude is that he quotes a couple of sources outside of Scripture. So he quotes the book of 1 Enoch in Jude 6 and 14 and 15, And he also likely refers to a work known as the Assumption of Moses in Jude verse 9. But here's the key. Quoting something doesn't mean that Jude thinks of these works as scripture. Because he never refers to these writings as scripture directly. There's actually a technical term in Greek for scripture. And he doesn't use that here. And he doesn't use any of the normal formulas for introducing scripture, things like it is written or thus says the Lord. He doesn't use those. He just quotes these works and understand that the list of books included in the Old Testament, that list was essentially set at this point by the Jews and they didn't recognize either of these works as scripture. So what's, what's going on here? Well, first of all, Jude's audience would have been familiar with these works and secondly, realize that he quotes these works because in these specific instances, what they say is true. So he's not referring to the works themselves as the inspired word of God, but they do still have truth in them. And he quotes part of that truth. Paul actually does something very similar in Acts chapter 17, verse 28, when he quotes secular prophets. He's not quoting them because they're inspired, but because what they said in that specific instance was true. So Jude is using a source familiar to his audience in order to state truth. Jude is in no way saying that we should think of First Enoch or other works as Scripture. I just wanted to make that clear. In case you ever hear somebody refer to this supposed issue in Jude, if you dig a little bit deeper, all the supposed issues go away. Okay, Scripture always stands Strong. But just to recap, the main point of Jude is to contend for the faith in the midst of false teaching. Now, moving on to 1st through 3rd John, the author of these letters doesn't mention himself by name like Paul does in his letters, but believers for centuries, basically since these letters have been written, have overwhelmingly attested to John the Apostle, who calls himself the elder, as the author. So, this is the same John who wrote the Gospel of John and the book of Revelation. And we see that the language in these letters is very similar to what's in the Gospel of John. So that's further attestation that this is the the same John who wrote those other books. And all the early copies of these letters actually have the name John in the title. There are no anonymous copies. So there's no reason, despite what you might hear skeptical scholars say, to think that anyone else wrote these letters. Now, John likely wrote these letters toward the end of the first century, possibly while he was in Ephesus. And he's really writing as a pastor, caring for his flock. You're going to see he refers to his audience as children many times. These are letters filled with love. He cares about his audience. But it's also clear that his flock is going through some difficult times, which is really a common theme in New Testament letters. It makes sense that when churches are having issues, letters get written. So 1 John 219 talks about a rift in the church. It appears that some people left the church to follow false teachings. So 1 John deals with some of those issues surrounding this split in the church. Second John deals with false teachings. And third John deals with a man named Diotrephus who's causing issues by trying to take over the congregation. So John is helping his flock navigate these difficult issues through these three letters and one thing you'll notice with John's letters especially 1st John is that they're somewhat circular and what I mean by that is he doesn't use long flowing logical arguments like Paul does. John tends to kind of circle back around to key themes over and over again. His writing tends to be a bit more artistic rather than just purely logical and there are a few key themes that you're going to see In these letters, especially in 1 John, one of those themes is love. Love for God and love for others. You'll also see him talk a lot about obedience, obeying Christ's commands, and truth. These letters are similar to Jude in that John talks about standing for truth in the midst of false teachings. So those are the main themes, love, obedience, and truth. And John makes it clear that these key ideas are all interconnected. You're going to see him repeat the idea that this is what love for God is, to keep his commands. For John, you can't separate the idea of love and obedience. Sometimes we act like faith and obedience are completely separate issues. Now, it is true that we're saved by faith alone and Christ alone. I want to be crystal clear about that. But you can't separate true biblical faith from obedience. True biblical faith always leads to becoming more like Christ. Now, John doesn't say that we'll be perfect. He actually says the opposite. He says in 1 John 1.8 that if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. Becoming more like Christ is a, a lifelong process. It never ends. We never fully get there this side of eternity. But we should see a trend toward greater obedience in our walks as believers because those who truly love God will want to obey his commands. And those who truly love God will stand for his truth and they will oppose false teachings. So you can see how these main themes of John's letters are related. Love God and you will always love his people. You will also obey God and you will stand for his truth. So all these ideas are related and all of it hinges on love, specifically love for God. So I want to ask you, do you love God? And I know that seems like a really silly question when I'm talking to Christians, but I think it's something that we have to really reflect on. And I include myself in this. Do we truly have a passion for God that drives everything that we do? Do our thoughts gravitate toward him? Do we stand in awe and wonder before him? Or do we just like what God offers us? The idea of eternal life. Do we just view our relationship with God as a get out of jail free card? Understand that love and passion for God is everything in the Christian life. And John reminds us in 1 John 4.19 that we love God because he loved us first. When we realize, when we truly grasp that the God of the universe, the king, the ruler of the universe, the God who speaks stars and galaxies into existence, the God who rules over every molecule and atom in the galaxy and in the universe, when we realize that God humbled himself to the point of taking on human flesh and he was beaten he was mocked, he was brutally killed, all so that we could spend eternity with him, so we could have a relationship with him, all because he loves us, the only appropriate response is to love him. So how do we deepen our love for God? Well, our relationship with God is like any other relationship in that we have to spend time with him. If we want to be closer to him, we have to spend time with him. We spend time listening to him through his word. He's already spoken to us through his word, and we talk to him through prayer, through praying continually, as Paul says. And we ask God to cultivate a love for him in us. That's a prayer that God wants to answer. So make time with God your daily priority. If you made time with God your priority every day, how different would your life look? I want you to think about that this week. And I want you to put that into action as well. And remember that love for God always leads to love for others. So I want to wrap up today with 1 John 3:16 through 18. This is one of my favorite passages in all of scripture, not John 3:16, but 1 John 3:16 through 18. John 3:16 is also very good, but this one is a little bit lesser known. It says, "This is how we have come to know love. He laid down his life for us." In other words, Jesus is the ultimate demonstration of love. It continues, "We also should lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters." If anyone has the world's goods and sees the fellow believer in need but withholds compassion from him, how does God's love reside in him? Little children, let us not love in word or in speech, but in action and in truth. John is saying we should follow Jesus' example. Just as Jesus laid down his life for us, we should lay down our lives for the good of others. And this passage says that if we truly have God's love in us, if we're truly believers, we will be moved to action. So here's what I want us to see. Biblical faith and love always include action, not just a a feeling. So I want to challenge us. What's one way we can put our love into action this week? Who's one person that you can demonstrate Christ's love to this week? It might be your spouse, it might be your kids, it might be a co-worker. It could be as simple as writing a note, maybe doing the dishes or doing some other chore to help out. It might be spending time with somebody. Simply sitting down and having a face-to-face conversation can mean a lot to somebody. So what's one action you can take this week to demonstrate love? Let's not just love with words, but in action And in truth, like John says. Jesus laid down his life for us. So let's not just live for ourselves and put ourselves first. Let's seek to live for the good of others. Scripture tells us that the world will know us by our love. That will only be true if we have love that takes action. So let's be a people who take action for his glory.